put to memory Psalm 8 and invite you to turn with me to that. You can um, you have your own Bibles or the, uh, the church Bible. Uh, if you use the insert that you'll find it there in the uh, bulletin, that's going to give you the, the version that I use. I preach from the English Standard Version, and, and particularly when we come to uh, verse 2, what my version will say and what the NIV will be kind of two different, a little bit of variance there in the wording, so you might get thrown off guard. But again, I invite you to turn with me with that. You know, there are some psalms, all the psalms are good, but there are some psalms that just kind of stand out. And no doubt each of you have your favorite psalms. Everyone's going to mention uh, Psalm 23, but a large number are also going to mention Psalm 8. And those who have studied it, the, the commentators who have done deep work in it, this is a particularly peculiar one that they love much. Derek Kidner, noted for his commentary, says this is the unsurpassing example of what a hymn should be. It, it's precise. It's, the theology is just right of giving the glory of the God is just so clear and just so beautifully written as well. So let's, uh, let's begin reading that text and see what we've got here. I'm going to begin, of course, with verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And that's easy to follow, isn't it? It's easy to follow along with David, who, who wrote this psalm, because... I mean, haven't we all had this experience? You know, haven't you all at some point, you, you've looked up at the night sky, you see the stars, and you just have to lift up a word of praise to God. It's just, what else can you do? And no doubt, David, you know, perhaps he's doing this when he was a shepherd. He's out there, you know, there are no skylights from the, the city about him. It's just that pure sky. And some of you probably have seen it out west. And he's looking up there. And, or maybe he's even at times thinking about the mornings. You've had this. You wake up and if you have a good view of the, depends where you are on the lake, whether you see the sunrise or the, the sunset, you see the rays hitting the clouds. It just does something to you. You, you feel, you just feel the majesty. The, the grandeur of God. You just know that. Now, however you've been feeling in, in this world, however you've been way down, you just think there's something more. Or there's somebody more. And there's, there's some place other that is filled with glory. And it just, just lifts you up. Well, that's what's happening to David. You know, he's written about this before. He wrote about it in Psalm 19. And he opens up expressing with enthusiasm. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You can't look at the sky without just, you know, it's just declaring to you God's majesty. Or in Isaiah, God is speaking through Isaiah. And he says this, this is in Isaiah 40. It says, lift up your eyes on high and see. Look up there at the stars. Who created these? 
He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You ever thought about that verse? And you look up at the sky, see all the stars. And we know more than Isaiah did. We know more than David did. We know that there are, what do we know? Billions and billions upon stars, light years and light years away. And so when you think about these things and you look at the heavens, well, it makes us feel small. And then it makes, for us, we feel the greatness of God. And that's the way it should be. The majesty of God is certainly displayed by the glory of the heavens. And yet that's not really the theme of our psalm. David's contemplation is going to turn elsewhere. And indeed, in the very next verse, it kind of delivers a jolt. But when I was memorizing this, for the life of me, I could not figure out why verse 2 is in there. And if you're just taking it out, no one would ever miss it. In the ESV, it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And I thought, what does this have to do with looking up at the stars? I mean, has anyone ever looked up at the stars? And then you thought about, well, babies and, and infants, and then you connected them with, well, and that's how you, you defeat foes and enemies. I, it just didn't make sense to me. But what David is doing is, is simply this. He's saying, I look up high and I look up and I look down low. I look at the most glorious, mighty things and I look at the smallest, most helpless things and I see the glory of God. I look at the full spectrum of creation. And there is God's majesty. So he looks up, he looks down, Wherever he looks, he sees the handiwork of God. And, and then when you think about that, it makes sense. I mean, who does not look at a newborn baby and then you're just, you're filled with awe at the, at the miracle of birth, the miracle of life. Now, so far, so good. You can see that. The up, the down. And what is this about establishing strength? through infants. And for that matter, what did God's foes have to do with any of this? Now, if you're using the church Bible, if you've got the blue Bible, you're saying, where do you get this established strength? It's not there. Okay? What you got there is God has prepared praise. And that kind of makes a little bit more sense. Now, why is there such a big difference in, in our versions? Where they're using different how do I say, different translations, okay? And one is using, well, I don't want to get into it. Let's just say they're using different translations, different manuscripts that come up with these different things. Now, there's a way in which you can kind of put them together. And if you had actually a new NIV version, here's how it would read. They do a good job with this. The new NIV reads, through the praise of children and infants, You have established a stronghold against your enemies. So it's taking taking those words, putting them together, and now it kind of starts to make sense. 
See, the bottom line is this. David has opened up praising how God has displayed his majesty, again, from the highest to the lowest, from the mightiest to the mighty. And then he's thinking, so that even God's enemies, those who are his detractors, those who deny him, they simply cannot stand against such a display. It's there. So you go back to the heavens where it appears. David has put his focus now. He's talked, first of all, your glory is displayed in the heavens. It's displayed in little children. Not even your foes can deny this majesty. So now he's going to continue on and kind of flesh this out in his psalm. So follow with me. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8. When I look at your heavens, that's where he's back up there now, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now note this little change in thought. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of, of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And you caught that little change, a little turn of thought. Look up, see the glories, and then you kind of just expect him just to keep talking about how glorious, or if he's going to turn to man, he's just going to see, and then I just see how insignificant I am. Who am I to think that I am anything? Something like that. But instead, David is struck with the thought of how great man is under that great big sky. He thinks, what is man? Well, he's, he's a little lower than the heavenly beings. He's a little bit lower than the angels. He is crowned with glory and honor. He has dominion over the rest of creation, over all the other creatures. And he, he starts to think about them, the creatures in the skies and the birds, his creatures on the earth, even under the seas. He, David is amazed that seemingly small man is so significant. Now, why is man so high on the scale of creation? Well, it's because the God who alone is creator, the God who has sovereign power over all that exists, over everything that lives, is because that God cares so much for him. Because it is God who has made him what he is. It is God who does the crowning of the the glory and honor. It is God who gives uh, dominion. And so David, he looks at the far distances of the heavens, And he is struck with a God who nonetheless is not so far away, but is very near. And whose thoughts for him, for his fellow human beings, are very dear. Not only just very dear, but exalting. So as David looks at the glory and honor of God, I'm sorry, the glory and honor that God has given to man, 
that he has given that honor and glory through giving him dominion over his fellow creatures. He then concludes with the same utterance he began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How is God's majesty displayed? By the glorious heavens? Well, yes, but also through glorious man as he exercises his rule in creation. That's the theme of the psalm. So let's consider for a moment the lessons that we can get from this psalm. And the first of all is that one we just talked about, the glory of man's rule. When I think of David writing this psalm, I I just got him back in his pre-king days, and he's a shepherd, and he's out there watching over his flock by night, and he's looking up in that starry sky, and then he... And he looks down at his sheep under his care. And I wonder if that's when he began to just start making the link there. And he begins to see, you know, how man has dominion. Now, he's not just getting that from nowhere. He knows his scriptures. And this all is part of the original mandate given to man, given to us in Genesis. Let me read to you from Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, all these things mentioned here in Psalm 8, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, that's happened, hasn't it? Man has exercised such rule. And even if we're quick, you just come to your mind about how man perhaps has abused that rule. Even that acknowledgement that man has abused his rule is, is still acknowledging. He has dominion over the rest of creation. When you think about it, I mean, David is a, is, is a shepherd. He's thinking about animals. I wonder if he was today and he saw all the modern technology and structures that have been created, he might have said, you know, something like this. I mean, that man has, for example, has engineered canals and, and lakes. He has, he has removed hills, and he's actually created hills. He has cut through mountains. He's, he's blocked up waters. He's built bridges to cross uh, the great rivers. He's invented planes that that pass over the mountains and over the seas. And the list could keep going on of the discoveries and the inventions that have allowed man to exercise dominion over the earth. Well, what our psalm is saying, and of course what Genesis is saying, again, that's God's mandate for man. Has man abused that mandate? Yes, no doubt. But the point of this psalm is is simply this. It is legitimate 
to praise the accomplishments of man, of men and women. Now, like I said, David is a shepherd. It's just natural for him to think about domesticating animals. He uh, might look today at all these magnificent buildings. And that would have given him awe by the majesty of God. In the same way, we can do that. We look at mountains. We look at the skies. Yeah, we can look at great structures, great buildings. We can look at great inventions. Appreciate them for what they are and see in that the the majesty of God. Now, there are two ways to do this, to look at man's achievements. Now, one is you look at these achievements and you give all the glory to man in direct opposition against God. This is exemplified in a book I'll never read again, but I, I got through it in Ayn Rand's book, The Fountainhead. I want you to picture in this scene, she has a very wealthy man and he's courting this woman. They're on his yacht. And he's about to propose to her, by the way. And this is, this is our conversation. The woman first. You've never felt how small you were when looking at the ocean. He laughed. Never nor looking at the planets, nor at mountain peaks, nor at the Grand Canyon. Why, why should I? When I look at the ocean, I feel the greatness of man. I think of man's magnificent capacity that created this ship to conquer all that senseless space. When I look at mountain peaks, I think of tunnels and dynamite. When I look at the planets, I think of and you see, now this was written before the 40s. I think of airplanes. Okay. We would think of rocket ships. And this is romantic writing, to be sure. I, I understand. But even more so, it displays the arrogance of man. But there's another way of looking at these exact same things. And then you give all the glory to God. Listen to John Calvin write about this. He said, shall we deny the possession of intellect to those who drew up? Now, what he's talking about, he's talking about, can we appreciate the gifts of unregenerate man? Not those who are following after God, just, just man in general. Okay. And he says, shall we deny the possession of intellect to those who drew up rules for discourse and taught us to speak in accordance with reason? Shall we say that those who by the cultivation of the medical art, expended their industry in our behalf, were only raving. What shall we say of the mathematical sciences? Shall we deem them to be the dreams of madmen? Nay. We cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without the highest admiration, an, admir- an admiration which their excellence will not allow us to withhold. But shall we deem anything to be noble and praiseworthy without tracing it to the hand of God? Well, that's what David did. He said, I look at, the, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Okay. It is, in fact, he adds on to this. He gives actually a warning, Calvin does. 
in despising the gifts. If we despise the gifts of, of man, then we end up, despite, we insult the giver. And the giver is the Holy Spirit. So the first lesson, it is fine, it is good to, to marvel at the accomplishment of man. But to see in those accomplishments the majesty of God. For it is God who gave man the mandate to do these things and the ability to exercise dominion. Now there's, that lesson, there's a lesson as well in that strange verse of verse 2. And it is a lesson that Jesus brings out. Remember, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the last week. He has had that glorious entry into Jerusalem. Everyone's been praising him. He goes into the temple courts. The praise is beginning. And uh, here's what takes place. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and then they saw this, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? See what these little kids are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Now here's Jesus' point. Simply this. The praise of God has to happen. In this case, it's the, it's the praise of, of Jesus himself. In fact, at another point, he says, look, if, if there's no praise taking place right now, it's going to come out from the rocks. It's got to take place. And if these religious leaders, who, by the way, are Jesus' enemies, if they're not going to give it, then the children will. If the powerful will not give it, well, then the small will give that praise. And we see that, don't we? How natural it is in children. There is no infant who then, as, as she grows into consciousness, has to be convinced that there is a God. I mean, none of you. None of you in the raising of your children... When you speak into your children at the very beginning that they could understand and you're speaking of God, none of them say, well, well, wait a minute. What do you mean that there's a God? No. It's only when they get, get older and the world gets to them. It is, it is natural for them to feel that. They don't have to be persuaded that there is a God who is worthy to be praised. I mean, we come into this world as sinners, that's for sure. But we also come in stamped with the image of God on us. And we come in with a natural disposition to believe that we have a creator. Even in this age of skepticism, it's been going on for more than 300 years. I mean, even down with today, with the best efforts of these aggressive atheist promoters and writing their books and all of that, no real progress has been made in ridding man of the divine, of the belief in the divine. It's still in the 90 percentile. People still believe. They may not believe the God of the Bible. They've just got to believe that there is something more. There's just too much wonder in the world, including 
the wonder of the achievements of man. And too much of these, of this miraculous wonders of the world, stars, children, whatever they may be, it is all displaying the majesty of God. And no enemy, no foe can fight against it. One thing our psalm is telling, one thing that Jesus is telling us, this praising of God is led by the children of the world. So there's the glory of man's rule that displays the majesty of God. There is, there is the glory and the praise of children for God. Now we're going to turn to another place in the New Testament, into the book of Hebrews. And there the writer is going to take us to another level of handling this psalm, particularly uh, verses 4 through 6. Here, he's going to impress upon his readers the greatness of Jesus. Now, I'm turning to Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Now, again, what the context is, he's, he's saying to his, to his listeners, you need to take serious the gospel. And one reason you need to take serious about the gospel is who brings you the gospel. It is Jesus Christ, and he's impressing upon them the greatness of Jesus. So Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the writer then takes Psalm 8, he takes David's meditation about man, and he applies it to Jesus. You have that verse, what is the son of man that you care for him? What was one of the terms that Jesus used for himself? Son of man. So what the, the writer here is doing, he's taking Psalm again, applying it to Jesus, which is not out of place. There are other places in the New Testament where the writers will take a psalm that seems to be applying to something else and will apply it to Jesus and to his work. So this is proper, what he's doing. And he's saying this, look, Jesus, during his time of incarnation on earth, was in a sense made lower than the angels. However, he was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of his obedience to his father through suffering, even unto death. And the result is now that all things in creation have been been placed under his feet, under his dominion. Now, the writer knows as soon as he says that, he creates a problem for the reader, which is 
Well, I don't see it happening. Okay? I don't see the subjection. The world seems to be doing a pretty good job at rebelling. Satan is alive and well, it seems, on planet Earth. Well, that's true. And it's not merely a a matter of, of appearance, that we just don't have quite the way of looking at things. Now, there is the truth that Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He reigns over his dominion. But having said that, even in all kingdoms, there could be many rebels, people who will not yield to the law. But even so, having said that, what we cannot see is that Jesus is at work. And he's working at all things for God's glory, and he is at work, and this we can't see, bringing each rebel under subjection. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. He speaks of how Jesus returned at that time. He will subject all individuals, all elements of nature to his rule. And when he does that, he's going to place it all at the feet of the Father. And the world that man has messed up with his own rule will then be restored to its full glory. And you've heard sermon after sermon about that restoration. And so the glory of God, I'm sorry, the glory of Jesus, who's the Son of Man, the Son of God, His glory has displayed, will display the majesty of God through through His own dominion, through Jesus' dominion. And there's one more consideration had the glory through man's own dominion, through the children, through the work um, of Jesus as a ruler himself. There's also the work of Jesus as Redeemer. And I want to link Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 together this way. What is man that the Son of God would taste death for him? What is the Son of Man that God shows how much he cares by sending his Son to suffer death on man's behalf? In Psalm 8, David is meditating on God's common grace. How God gives to all mankind the the role and, and gifts of the ruler. The writer of Hebrews moves us to special grace, to saving grace. How God by grace saved us through the death of his Son. And so truly we are led to ask, who are we? Who are we that the God of majesty would show such love? Paul reflects on this. Who were we when when God sent his son? We were sinners. Sinners who had marred the image of God that was supposed to have been displayed in us. We were enemies. We were God's foes who had rebelled against him and refused to be subjected to him. The creation displays the marks of our failure and our rebellion, the wars, the scars of the earth, the, the enmity between men, the fear of our fellow creatures when faced by us. Pascal summed up the con- contradictions of man this way. What kind of freak is man? 
What a novelty he is. How absurd he is. How chaotic. And what a mass of contradictions. And yet, what a prodigy. He is, he is judge of all things, yet a feeble worm. He is repository of truth, and yet sinks into such doubt and error. He is the glory and the scum of the universe. Well, for such, the true Son of Man, the Son of God, made himself lower than even the created angels. Indeed, he even made himself lower than ourselves because he made himself our servant, serving us at the cross himself. Such is the majesty of God. Truly, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the glorious display of the heavens, his majesty is seen in in the praise of the children's lips. His majesty is proclaimed. And the rule and the giftedness of man, his majesty is displayed. Praise God in the saving work of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. The majesty of of his love is manifested to us. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, how majestic is our Lord. How majestic are his wonders, are his deeds, the deeds of creation, the deeds of our very salvation. We give you praise and honor. In Christ's name, amen.